Well, return with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, really 11 and 12 is where we'll be on this evening. I think some of those last two verses that were read in our hearing is a, a basis of um, the sermon this evening, um, which is, again, a little more topical and thematic than nature, not really an exposition of a single verse. But if I were going to attach two verses um, to this, I would attach verses 12 and 13 of Exodus 12. And so, let's read those two verses again. Exodus chapter 12 and verses 12 and 13. This is the word of God. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Amen. We're studying Israel's exodus from Egypt. We're studying it as a pattern for salvation. I was given a book this week that was written in the 1860s. And the subtitle of the book is The Gospel According to Moses. And that really is an apt title for what we're doing in this series of sermons from Exodus and Numbers. We're seeing it as the gospel according to Moses. We saw ourselves in Israel's sojourn as slaves in Egypt. Their experience was one of a miserable, inescapable, and deserved bondage. And that's precisely where we were when the Lord found us and delivered us. We were in the misery of sin's bondage. We saw another similarity in the reasons that God gave for redeeming Israel. He redeemed them because of his grace, because of his pity on them in their miserable condition, because of his compassionate character that delivers the lowest of sinners from the lowest depths. And that's precisely why he redeemed us. There was nothing in us. It was all his sovereign grace. The only thing in us he saw was our misery, was our sin, was our need for him. And he reached down from the lofty heights. He condescended to the lowest depths. And he delivered us from those depths because of his great compassion. Because he remembered his covenant that he had made with his son to give him a people. And now we're looking at similarities in the method that God used for delivering Israel. He chose a particular method for delivering them. And he chose that method so that it would be a pattern of salvation from that point on. There's more to this than just the relaying of history. It is historical fact. We do not deny that in the least. 
We believe that these things actually occurred as they are written in the 1400s BC, that there really was this exodus, but it's not just history. There are theological lessons as well. This is divinely orchestrated by the God of providence to be a pattern of salvation. And so we saw that the way that they are redeemed is really by two parallel tracks. The most conspicuous method of their deliverance is a redemption by power. And that's what we remember when, as children, we learned these stories in Sunday school of the ten plagues. That this was a display of God's power. He left the nation in chaos. He stripped Pharaoh of his power to keep Israel in bondage. He exposed Pharaoh for the impotent fraud that he really was. He got glory over the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. It was a redemption by power. And we often forget that aspect of our redemption, that we too were redeemed by power. Satan was actively holding us in his grip. He was a strong man who claimed us as his rightful possession and domain. And in order for us to be redeemed, Satan had to be defeated. He had to be stripped of his power over us. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly. He triumphed over them in his cross. He was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. For as much as the children were partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same, that he, through death, might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and, by, and that he might deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We were redeemed by the irresistible power of God. This evening, we're turning our attention to the other parallel track. There was the redemption by power that we focused on last week, and this evening, redemption by price. Their redemption was not only redemption by power, it was a redemption by price. Our theme last week was redemption by the power of God's hand. And tonight, our theme is redemption by the price of God's lamb. Redemption by the price of God's lamb. And of course, the place that we see that in the Exodus narrative is in the 10th plague and in the Passover provision that's laid out in Exodus 11 and 12. Now, let me give you a little road map of where we're going to go this evening so you can see where we're headed and you can keep up with with where I'm, where I'm going with this. I want to begin by just looking at the general context of the 10th plague and the Passover and draw some big sweeping parallels between that overall context and our salvation. And then we're going to narrow our focus and look at four parallels between the Passover sacrifice the lamb at the Passover, and our Savior. And so, um, some context, big sweeping parallels and ideas, 
and then four particular points of correspondence between the Passover lamb and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we come to Exodus 11 and 12, you're aware of the story. Over the course of many months, perhaps as long as a year, Egypt has been devastated by nine crippling plagues. The Nile was turned to blood. It was an infestation of frogs and lice and swarming insects. There were boils. There was the death of all the livestock. There were the locusts. There was the hail. And there was the the terrifying three days of darkness. Still, Pharaoh will not relent. And that was according to the plan of God. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He, like we talked about last week, let Pharaoh be Pharaoh so that he could display his power to the glory of his name. He was smiting Pharaoh. He was smiting Egypt for their cruelty toward his people. He was exposing the impotence of the Egyptian gods. He was building the Israelites' faith over the course of that year and those nine plagues. And so we pick up the story at the end of chapter 10. After the ninth plague, Pharaoh offered a compromise. He says there in verse 24 of chapter 10, Go ye, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. So the compromise is, you may depart, but you have to keep your herds here. You can't, you can't take your herds with you. Of course, the Egyptians needed the Israelites' herds. All their livestock had died in that plague. What was it? I think the sixth, fifth or sixth plague, all their livestock had died. But Moses held the line. He insisted that they had to take their herds with them because they were called to worship God when they departed at the mountain where God had appeared in the burning bush. And they did not yet know what that worship would entail, and so they needed to be prepared for whatever God called them to, and so they needed their herds for that worship. And so Pharaoh was enraged. God hardened his heart, you see there in verse 27. And Pharaoh banished Moses and Aaron from his presence, and he said, if you ever see my face again, I'm going to kill you. And Moses agreed. You'll never see our face again. But as Moses was turning to leave, it seems that the Lord gave him one last word. And he turns around and he speaks to Pharaoh much of what we read in chapter 11. The first few verses of chapter 11 is a word for the people. But when you get to verse number 4, Moses speaks... And you see there, toward the end of the chapter, that this was done in Pharaoh's sight. Verse number 8 is when he actually leaves Pharaoh's presence, at the end of verse 8. And so, it's like he, he leaves, they're both angry at each other. If you ever see me, I'm going to kill you. Moses agrees, you'll never see my face again. He turns to leave, 
The Lord gives him one last word. He turns around and he announces to Pharaoh in this last meeting the terms of the tenth plague. And so those first verses of chapter 11 say there will be one more plague upon Pharaoh, upon Egypt, and afterwards he is going to thrust you out. This is going to be the last straw. You know what the tenth plague entailed. You know what involved the death of the firstborn. For whatever reason, when we taught children this um, narrative from the Old Testament, we ended up telling the story about the death angel that would come through Egypt and smite the firstborn. There's no such thing as the death angel. Who is the one who is going to be killing the firstborn? We'll look there in verse number four. About midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And if you look over in 1229, you read, it came to pass at midnight that the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The destroyer, the executor of the firstborn is the Lord himself. The Lord himself placed every firstborn in Egypt, whether it be man or beast. Every firstborn was under a death sentence. Firstborn, that word, it does imply the male gender. But there's nothing inherent in the word regarding age. So presumably, every firstborn male, no matter how old, regardless of age or status in life, every firstborn male would be killed that night. And the death sentence applied to every inhabitant of the land, including Israel. All, without exception, were under this curse. And outside of the Lord's provision, this curse was inescapable. I mean, if the Lord has announced that he is going to kill someone, what can you or I do about it? Nothing. So if we thought that bondage in Egypt as slaves was an inescapable situation, this is a hundred times more inescapable. The Lord God himself has announced that every firstborn in the land is going to die. And if the Lord is determined to do it, what can you and I do about it? The parallel, of course, is very clear, isn't it? Just like God determined to kill all of the firstborn in Egypt, God has determined to kill sinners. Isn't that true? There's kind of some shock value in the way I said that, isn't there? But it's not just shock value, it's true. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. 
He told Adam in the garden, And the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Dying thou shalt die. Jesus Christ speaks about being cast with two hands and two feet into hell, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. God has determined to kill sinners. And the backdrop of the Passover is God's determination to kill all of the firstborn. And there's a parallel there with God's determination to kill sinners. We are all under a verdict from God of execution. But God, in grace, determined to spare some of those who were under that death sentence. And his directive for escaping the execution had to do with the killing of a lamb and the sprinkling of its blood on the exterior door. And what's the parallel there? Are we supposed to learn from that salvation by works? Obey God in the minutest detail, and then you won't be condemned. Do what he says, and then you won't die. Is that the parallel? Is that the lesson? It's not the lesson at all. You know it's not the lesson. You see, when an Israelite father obeyed God's directive about the Passover, taking that lamb, killing it at sunset, roasting it, and providing it for a meal for his family, collecting the blood, applying it to the exterior door. All of that was an act of faith. It was not works. It was an act of faith. That's what Hebrews 11 says. In Hebrews 11 and verse 28, we read that the keeping of the Passover and the sprinkling of blood was a powerful example of saving faith. It says, through faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. It was an act of faith. How was this obedience to the directive concerning the killing of a lamb and the sprinkling of its blood on the door. How was this a powerful example of saving faith? Well, think of it. Moses had nothing to go on here but the bare word of God. This entire situation was absolutely without precedent. It was an utterly unique situation. He had to believe the bare word of God about this, both the announcement of the curse and the directive for escaping it. Think about how illogical the directive was. If it is announced that God is going to kill in four days from now, all of the firstborn of the land of Egypt. What's the logical thing to do? The logical thing is to get out of Egypt. It's to flee. It's to run away. But no, God says, remain. 
I'm killing every firstborn in Egypt, so stay, remain, and put blood on your doorpost. There doesn't appear to be any connection to an Israelite father hearing these words. What is the connection between killing a lamb, eating it, putting its blood on your doorpost, and the survival of my son tonight? What's the connection? And God simply said, that's the way I'm going to spare him. You have to trust me on that. The Israelites' faith rested on the bare word of God. It took the promise of God on face value, whether or not it made sense, that was was regardless of that. The general context here is the presentation of a scenario in which God's people must trust His way as the only means of deliverance from certain execution. And he revealed his way of redemption to be the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. It made no logical sense. It was completely unprecedented. They had to trust him on this, that this is his way of there being no condemnation. So the keeping of the Passover is a pattern of salvation. And when an Israelite father kept the Passover, it was an example of real saving faith. And of course, the biggest reason for that is that the rest of Scriptural revelation makes clear that the Passover lamb was a redemptive type. That the Passover lamb itself was a picture prophecy of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know that ten times in the four Gospels we are told what day Jesus died on the cross. Over and over again, we are told by the gospel writers that he died on Passover. His appointed hour was Passover. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. This is the hour. The hour is Passover. There had to be significance to the hour of our Savior's death being Passover, that particular day of the year. When Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they spoke with Jesus. Do you remember what they talked about? Luke is the only gospel writer that tells us what they talked about. They talked about Jesus' exodus. That Greek word is used by Luke. They talked about his exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Isn't that intriguing? 
Isn't that an interesting use of language? The exodus that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. It clearly implies that Jesus is the Passover lamb, that he is the fulfillment of that Old Testament type, and that his death is going to be accomplished at Jerusalem for the redemption of his people. And then, of course, most clearly, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse number 7 Goes, just comes right out and says that Christ is our Passover. He is the real Passover that the Passover of Exodus 12 pointed toward. And so let's think together then about four parallels between the Passover lamb and our Lord Jesus. In the first place, the Passover lamb was a satisfactory sacrifice. A satisfactory sacrifice. There's a lot in those opening verses of chapter 12 about the qualifications for the sacrifice that was to be killed on that night. It had to be very carefully selected. And if you look there at verse number 5, you have what the Hebrew father was looking for in his herd. He is looking for a lamb without blemish, a male, and a male lamb of the first year. Think about how this had to be a satisfactory sacrifice. Think about that blemishless qualification. That, of course, is very significant. And the Apostle Peter wrote, didn't he, that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Our Lord Jesus was perfect. He was complete. He was impeccable. In the words of Hebrews, he was holy. That word holy has to do with an inward godliness. It's not the normal word for holy. The normal word for holy is actually something that is conferred upon someone. You are consecrated. You are sanctified. You are made holy. That word applies to Jesus, but when the, when the writer of Hebrews wants to talk about the perfection of Christ, he uses a deeper word. Because the holiness of Jesus is not something conferred upon him. It is something that he is from the inside out. And so he uses a word for godliness. He uses a word that has to do with the inner nature of our Lord Jesus. He is holy. He is harmless, incapable of being a malefactor, of being a criminal. And the word harm is the word malefactor, like used for the two other men that were crucified alongside Jesus. It's the same word, just negated. He's not a malefactor. He's not a criminal. He's harmless. 
and then he's undefiled, holy, harmless, and undefiled, completely untainted, completely uncontaminated in this fallen world. You and I know what it is to walk through a fallen world and to be always picking up its contamination. Just being defiled just by life in a fallen world because there's something in us that answers to it all. Not so with the Lord Jesus. And there was nothing in him that answered to the fallenness of the world. He is uncontaminated, untainted by the corruption that is in this world. And this, of course, was necessary in order for him to be a sacrifice for others. He did not need to offer for his own sins and then for the sins of others, Hebrews tells us. And by this blemishlessness, he is worthy of satisfying the Lord and obtaining eternal redemption for us. Like we saw this morning, he obeys the law in precept. He satisfies the law so that we can be freed from its condemnation. But when thinking about the Passover being satisfactory, you know, there are a couple other things to consider beyond the blemishlessness. And you know, the blemishlessness, that's kind of like the low-hanging fruit here. That's the easy things to see a parallel between the Lamb and Christ. There are other things here too. For instance, we're told in verse number 5 that it's to be taken from among the sheep and from the goats. It's to be selected. It's to be chosen. And doesn't that correspond to Christ too? That he was chosen by God? How often in our study of the servant songs in Isaiah a year and a half ago, did we see that God's servant was chosen, that he was ordained, that he was elected to be mediator? Isaiah 42, the first servant song, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. Isaiah 49, the second servant song. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother he hath made mention of my name. And this choice, this setting apart of Jesus is the essence of his title, Christ or Messiah. He is the anointed one. And the Old Testament anointing oil was a symbol of consecration, of selecting someone and equipping them for service. Jesus is the anointed one. He is chosen from all eternity as the only redeemer of God's elect. He's chosen. He's elected. And then consider this. The Passover was blemishless, it was chosen, and it was also tested. According to verse number 3, what day are they to make their selection of the lamb? In verse number 3, it's on the 10th day of the month that they select it. But if you look down at verse number 6, what day do they kill the lamb? It is on the 14th day. So there are intervening days between the selection of the lamb and the actual sacrificing it on Passover. What was that intervening time for? Well, no doubt it was for a close examination of that chosen lamb to ensure that it indeed met every requirement of God. You put yourself in the place of that Hebrew father. You would be looking closely at that lamb, wouldn't you? 
over and over again. You would keep it in a little pen outside, right outside your back door. You're not going to let that lamb run free. It might break a leg and no longer be blemishless. You're going to closely examine that lamb. You're going to go out there every morning and you're going to look over that lamb. You're going to pick it up. You're going to turn it upside down. You're going to turn it around. You're going to, you're going to take your fingers through its wool. You're, you are going to closely examine that lamb for those four days, aren't you? Your son's life depends on it. There's a parallel with Christ, isn't there, about being tested? There are 33 years between his incarnation and his death. And for those decades, he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He satisfied all the demands of the law perfectly. He pleased the Father. He lived without fault in this world. Pilate found no fault in him. Satan had nothing in him. And Hebrews talks about how he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Not that he moved from disobedience to obedience. There was nothing in him any less than obedience. He was always the beloved son in whom the father was well pleased. But he learned obedience to the things he suffered, meaning that his obedience was not mere lip service. He backed up his resolve to obey by actually obeying, and in the most difficult of circumstances. It's like the process of becoming a Navy SEAL. I don't think anyone sets out to be a Navy SEAL without a prior commitment and being already disposed to embrace a certain level of deprivation and rigorous training. You know what you're getting yourself into when you are going to be a Navy SEAL. You're already disposed to the rigorous training, to the deprivation, to the obeying of orders. That's why you would choose to do that. But there is a difference between being disposed toward it and actually enduring it. And that's what Hebrews is getting at when it says he learned obedience through the thing that he suffered, things that he suffered. Jesus was a tested sacrifice by his perfect life, a life which obediently endured suffering. He earned the right to die for his people. He was Truly a tested, a satisfactory sacrifice. Okay, so there's one large parallel. He's satisfactory, blemishless, chosen, tested. The Passover was also a slain sacrifice. Death was the divine sentence upon the firstborn and therefore the sacrificial victim had to die. The penalty had to be carried out. Justice had to run its course. But not just any death would do. If an Israelite family merely killed the lamb and ate it at midnight, if that's all they did, they would still suffer the tremendous grief of a lost son in the morning. 
There had to be the shedding of blood. There had to be the collection and the application of the blood of the sacrifice. And it was a visual picture painted for the Israelites that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It wasn't the carcass of the lamb that averted the death sentence. It was the blood of the lamb. God said that when he saw the blood, he would pass over you. That's verse 13 of this chapter. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The Lord was appeased. The Lord was satisfied only when he saw the blood. There's more in the death of Jesus than just the execution of justice. There had to be a turning away of God's wrath. There had to be a propitiation, a satisfaction for all the offended rights of God. And only the precious blood of Christ can appease the righteous wrath of God and wash away the guilt of sin. It had to be a slain sacrifice with the shedding of blood and the application of that blood. A third obvious parallel is that it was a substitutionary sacrifice. It was satisfactory. It was slain. It was substitutionary. It's the most obvious thing about the Passover. The firstborn was doomed to death. The lamb died in his place. And if anyone could understand the grace of substitution, it was the Hebrew firstborn the next morning. If anybody could understand the grace of substitution, it was those spared firstborn sons. Somebody was going to die on Nisan 14. It was either going to be the lamb or the son. The only way for the firstborn to live was for the lamb to die. It was a direct substitution. And that's the most elementary fact about the death of the Lord Jesus and the gospel of our Savior. It is a substitution. Every sin ever committed will be punished. It will either be punished in the person of the one who committed the sin, or it will be punished in the person of their God-appointed substitute. But there are no third options here. Somebody must die for sin. That such is the tremendous offense to the rights of God that our sin is, that somebody must die. There must be a satisfaction. The rights of God must be returned. That's how serious sin is. Sin is not just the breaking of rules. Sin is a personal affront to the glory of our Creator. And He must be satisfied. And so someone must die. And it is either the Lamb or the sinner. That's the heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He suffered once, the just for the unjust. 
God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. And the last point of similarity I'll show you is that it was a successful sacrifice. Down in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 12, Moses is talking to the people about how this is going to eventually be a day of annual remembrance for them and how they're going to tell their children about this one day. And it says in verse 26, It shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. God said that when he saw the blood, he would pass over the house, and that's exactly what he did. It was a successful sacrifice. The sacrifice worked. Everywhere there was no blood, there was death in that house. A firstborn or several firstborn died. If there was blood on the house, nobody died. It was a successful sacrifice. And we likewise rejoice that the sacrifice of Christ does not just make salvation possible. It actually saves. This is one of our major disagreements with the so-called Church of Rome. Their perpetually repeated mass, which they claim is an actual sacrifice of the transubstantiated body and blood of the Lord, is a presentation over and over again of a sacrifice that is ineffectual. If it has to be repeated, then it's not working. It's not actually accomplishing something. It's not successful. It does not actually atone. It has to be repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Which is one of the major reasons why we reject the doctrine of the Mass. But unfortunately, there are many Protestants who hold a similar position. They don't believe in a repeatable sacrifice of Christ, but because they misunderstand Scripture, and they think that they have to affirm that the sacrifice of Christ equally applies to every single individual who ever lived, they think they have to maintain, therefore, that there are people in hell for whom Christ died that his sacrifice made their salvation possible, but that they unfortunately did not actualize that sacrifice by their own faith. And that isn't the case at all. Reformed Christians are the only ones who can really affirm a successful sacrifice because of the precious biblical doctrine of particular redemption that the sacrifice of Christ 
actually reconciles sinners to God. It actually, not just potentially, actually satisfies God's justice. That it actually saves. And that just like the Passover lamb actually saved every firstborn, and just like everyone without the blood applied perished, everyone for whom Christ died is saved. No exceptions. And there is no one in hell for whom Christ died and shed blood for. The sacrifice of Christ works. It is a successful sacrifice. And the Passover shows that to be the case for sure. The tenth plague, the Passover provision, it's clearly a type of salvation. God redeems by the price of his lamb. You know, on that night of the original Passover, a Hebrew father could say, I don't understand how lamb blood is going to cause my son to be spared. He may not understand. He may not get the connection at all. But if he proudly resists the divine directive to sprinkle the blood, his son will be killed if he rejects that directive. His son will be killed no matter what other provision he might make. He might stand vigil over his son all night long saying, I'll protect my son. And it won't work. His son will die unless there's blood on the door. There's no place to run. There's no place to hide. There's no other provision available. Unless God sees the blood, that son will be killed. And the same is true now. The only way for a sinner to escape the wrath of God is by the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. And a person can resist that, and he cannot accept that, and he can try to understand that and to explain it in terms that are more acceptable to modern man, but he will do so to the eternal damnation of his soul. There is no other way God has determined to kill sinners. But he has promised to spare those who have the merits of Christ's blood applied to them. Christ, the blemishless Son of God, was sacrificed to bear the punishment that was due to sinners. His offering was a satisfactory, slain, substitutionary, and entirely successful offering. He's the only means of deliverance. And you and I are called to believe it. To believe the bare word of God about this. Praise God that when he sees the blood, he passes over us, and we are not condemned. Praise God for so great a salvation. 
as is provided for us and accomplished in the sacrifice of our Savior. Let's pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we praise Thee for giving us this insight into the gospel through a tangible picture and historical event recorded inerrantly for us. We pray that you would enlarge our capacity to understand the work of Christ and to give you glory for it. And we pray that we would live consistent with our confession that he is a successful Savior. Will you keep us from sin this week? Give us victory, O Lord, and give us opportunities of sharing this good news with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.